0: Hi everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast, presented by OverDrive. This is Jill. Today's episode is an interview I did with um, best-selling author Lauren Groff about her new book, *Matrix*. I am so excited for you all to listen to this episode. Um, I loved this book. It is a historical fiction novel set during the time of Eleanor of Aquitaine, and is about a um, poet who was a real person, but there's not a lot known about her. So, of course, I have to ask Lauren questions about sort of her research process for researching when you don't know a lot about the person. And um, it's just wonderful. So, I'm really excited for you all to listen to this. I will say that, unfortunately, we had some technical issues in the beginning, and then both of us were working on a hard stop. And so, by the time we finally figured out um, the actual interview and got to it... It was not, we did not have as much time as I would have hoped, so it's a fairly short interview, but hopefully that will just make you all the more excited to find out more and read her book, Matrix. So if you want to get a hold of the podcast, you can go to our website, professionalbooknerds.com. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds, and you can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. I think that's all I have for you right now at this time um yeah i hope everyone had a had a good read and ebook day and you know read some ebooks on reading ebook day and uh yeah so with that i hope you enjoyed this interview i did with lauren groff on the professional book nerds podcast <laughs> This is Jill, and my guest today is best-selling author Lauren Groff, the writer behind the novels The Monsters of Templeton, Arcadia, Fates and Furies, as well as the short story collections Delicate Edible Birds in Florida. Her latest book, Matrix, is out in September. Lauren, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's such a pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So can you start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to Matrix?
1: Sure, so Matrix uh, is about an imagined life of an actual real life writer in the um, 12th century Her name was Marie de France And she wrote these incredible lay, which are uh, very adventurous um, poems that are more like short stories And I fell in love with her over 20 years ago when I took um, a couple of courses in Ancien Francais, which is Old French And just... The, was blown away, away by these incredible narratives um and so with matrix what i what i did was actually i reverse engineered a life out of the text that we have into the life of this person that we don't know much about and um by mean by ways of um talking about things like uh female power and about um how to sort of subvert the hierarchy <laughs> and um how to you know to to create a community that is nourishing and not just, you know, one that is imposed upon you.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm actually curious about your research process, because as you said, we don't know a lot about her, which does give you a lot of freedom. But on the other hand, we don't know a lot about her. And so I'm sort of wondering, like, how, how you kind of built that with so little knowledge about who she really was.
1: Yeah, it was uh, it was a fascinating and sort of wonderful experience. I love I love research. I mean, it's one of my favorite parts of the whole writing process. So I kind of went mad, and I um, I read everything I could get my hands on from you know from from novels imagining the life at the time to academic uh, papers and books, and um, slowly, you know, I I, I did know uh, a number of things about the lives uh, and the, the ways that Benedictine uh, Abbey sort of functioned at that time. And out of the, that sort of superstructure within the daily life, you can, you can sort of see the way that an abbess sort of moved behind the scenes. So what I, what I did basically was take um, what we did know and a, a lot of supposition and just extrapolated from there. I tried very, very hard actually to put um nothing in the book that I hadn't seen in research. So um almost everything, even the the mystical visions, parts of it, you know, pieces of each mystical vision mm-hmm. comes out of something from the time. Um yeah, yeah, it was so much fun.
0: <laughs> I yeah. <laughs> that's always that's an, that's just such a fun and interesting time period because there's just so much you know going on just in the world in general and you know you focus on this this one woman who has sort of like been taken from her familiar luxury lifestyle of the palace um and then moved to an abbey and things are very different <laughs>
1: yes very
0: different indeed yes um so I won't lie, when I first saw the title and then read the description, I was, I sort of struggled to see the connection, but the more I understood the word matrix, the more it made sense so in the context of the book. There are a lot of layers to this one word.
1: Oh, so many <laughs> layers to this one word. Well, you know, I think the the average American probably thinks of um, matrix as in the matrix, right? Right. <laughs> I knew that I was- from the Latin for mother Um, and it's used in so many disciplines I mean in um, uh, geology it's sort of the substrate in which stones, gemstones are set Um, in sculpture it is the form uh, from which things like um, masks um, even records um, you know things that are created out of casts that that they originally have a matrix that -hmm. is the, the original form Um, And, you know, um, I just really love the word, right? I I think that um, Marie, who is my abbess, she is the the mother, the mother of the abbey um, in many ways. And she is sort of the the vestigial form that um, is perhaps overlooked a little bit.
0: For sure. And I will say that the the historical nature of this feels like a big departure for you as a writer you know everything else you've written is contemporary but as I hear you talk about how you love research that's also somewhat surprising to me so you know like I guess there's sort of two questions here kind of what what made you you know finally want to write historical fiction and how was the writing process different from your other novels
1: yeah so uh i have written historical fiction before right i i I would say that arcadia because it took place um
0: before i was
1: born that's
0: fair no that's fair
1: okay (laughs) um and there are a lot of stories in delicate edible birds for for instance that are um set in times that i was not present for so for me they are historical fiction right so um one, Delicate Edible Birds itself, the actual story was set during World War II, and there's one called, um, and which is set in 1918 during the flu pandemic, mm-hmm. um, and so it, it actually isn't that far of a stretch for me, my brain does, um, love history, and I'm always, like, looking both back and trying to look forward at the same time, and, um, feeling, you know, a little bit of vertigo because of that, um, <laughs> And, yeah, obviously, um, the works of the past create my own literary matrix, right? Um, I was uh, in college, I was a double major in French literature and English literature, and honestly, in both disciplines, I was never taught anything that uh, was produced after 1950. (laughs) So basically, you know, that's when... Uh, contemporary literature started for me and it was such a such a revelation to to know that actually humans uh, who are alive now are creating more <laughs> so art. Um, so Um, So, you know, it didn't feel like a stretch at all. Um, It felt like something necessary, because what I really wanted to do was talk about our contemporary world. um, But I wanted to do it without having to mention the name of um, the person who was the president at the time. Sure. I actually still haven't really said in, in my house. I think we called him um Voldemort for a while um so right and so i wanted to talk and and to sort of think about um what it, w- it would be like to actually do what we all joked about which is to create like a, f- a female the feminine a feminist separatist utopia yeah. <laughs> and actually live in it over the course of writing the book.
0: and now we'll take a quick break for word from this week's sponsor So you've probably tried meditation before and it didn't work, right? Or maybe you felt like you were doing it wrong. If mental health is part of your self-care plan this year, you owe it to yourself to try Headspace. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations and an easy to use app. Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. Overwhelmed? Headspace is a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. I definitely struggle with falling asleep at night, got those anxiety- whatever just like running rampant through my head and the wind down sessions have been super helpful. Headspace is backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, has 600,000 five-star reviews and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule, anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash PBN. That's headspace.com slash PBN for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash PBN today. this book along with some of the year others like arcadia kind of take place in these somewhat small isolated communities and i'm just sort of curious what kind of draws you to like is that like is that your intention to like write these books about these communities or is that just sort of like what happens like in this instance you have this character who is at an abbey and that's just sort of what the story is
1: yeah, it just happened. <laughs> um, it's a, one of those things that happens after the fact. Almost like the, the title, for a very long time, the title was Matrix. I didn't even second guess it. And then other people are like, are you sure you want to do that? They're going to associate Keanu Reeves um, with your book. Um, at the same time, you know, I, um, I do think that I am drawn to microcosms um in my fiction and i think the the intentional community is a kind of microcosm that is fascinating and that reflects the larger world and in some ways fiction itself is a microcosm right of the larger world i mean it's like something that the the writer can ostensibly control um it's a controlled experiment in some ways so, um, I think that possibly, you know, maybe I'm being like self referential towards the, the work. Um, um, but I, I can guarantee that, um, you know, it, I probably won't do it again now that I know what <laughs> I'm doing
0: over and over again. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry. I know, I'm sure you've had this, like, multiple people have asked you, I'm sure, asked that question. But I was just thinking about it. I was like, yeah, all these other books are somewhat small communities that's interesting but i (laughs) i'm i'm your comment about how like literature also sort of acts as a microcosm and how you were saying that this was sort of your way to kind of write through um and write about something without writing directly about it feels very accurate for what you were trying to do
1: Oh, thanks! Oh my goodness! You know, and that was actually quite a struggle to try to like make things um, have the verisimilitude of the past, but also sort of speak forward into the future, and that that sort of resonance, almost like the tuning fork between past and contemporary world, was really hard to get. <laughs> like it was very difficult to hit.
0: Well, and what I like about the book is that you know you you set it at a time when we have you know Honor of Aquatine and. Everyone knows who she is, but you sort of, you you position this world and from a very different point of view and character, which was interesting to me as someone who has read other things about that time period. Like, this sort of gave me a point of view into that part of history that I'd never seen before.
1: Yeah, and you know, I really love Eleanor of Aquitaine. I think that she is just profoundly incredible in every way yeah. and she's been one of my, my heroes of course like she's only known relationally yeah. and in imagination right? she's only known through the men that she birthed or married or you know yeah. was descended from so um, that's that's the only importance she actually held to a lot of the people who were doing the history at the time um, which is sad right because she is actually quite a an amazing mover and she of her own Um But, you know, I wasn't necessarily interested in the, the, the top, um, person in yep. the country the only woman who yeah. is considered you know even close to equal i wanted to to talk about a community of women who uh, were just misfits in the their actual worlds who didn't didn't want to get married or didn't succeed at marriage didn't succeed at childbearing um were basically failures as women um in the eyes of the world and who um would, in actual history, come to a convent or an abbey and, and find a community and find um, people to love and to love them into death. Right. And I think that that is a beautiful sort of like a proto-intentional um, family situation.
0: Absolutely. Um, I read in an interview that you had actually finished the book before the pandemic lockdown and therefore spent the past year and a half, you know, editing the book. So given that you were kind of writing about this, um, isolated community as it were, while somewhat experiencing that yourself, I'm, I'm wondering if that had kind of any effect on how you approached the book during the editing process.
1: It did, it did actually. Um, I think, um... I, I generally travel a great deal, um, primarily because I get very restless, <laughs> and I love these lectures that I give, uh, in places, and I feel like it's just, like, joyous to go and to talk to actual human beings, um... So I didn't. I couldn't do that, and I was stuck at home with my two beautiful rambunctious children <laughs> and my enormous husband um, and a dog who smells very bad. So I, I did feel a great deal of claustrophobia, and I think part of what I was doing the editing process was trying to sort of break that feeling of claustrophobia for Marie too. Mm. I was trying to sort of to to take the the Abbey's. Pressure and the pressure of that, and to push back against it um, as much as I could in while I was editing.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. mm mm-hmm. Um. Well, I have had a wonderful time talking to you, but I know you have a bit of a <laughs> tight timeline. This happens when you're, you know, big fancy writer. So, oh no, I'm picking my <laughs> kids from school. Thank you. No, I know why. I wasn't going to let the listeners know. That's why. You understand? I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> I mean, you've been standing outside in the hot sun for a good twenty minutes already, so it's fine.
0: <laughs> um, I just have one final question, which is: What do you hope readers take away from reading Matrix?
1: I don't want anyone to take a lesson away because I think that um, fiction isn't uh, it isn't for pedagogy. I really don't. Love that um, vision. I don't think it's utilitarian at all. I think it's primarily aesthetic, and then um, sparks questions. And so, what I would like for people to take away from it are really just questions about um, what it means uh, to be religious without religion, what it means to be um, forced into a place that you never wanted to be and make the best of it, um, what it means to be a powerful person, and whether one's gender has anything to do with the way that that power manifests. You know, like just so many open-ended doorways as opposed to, um, I don't want to give anyone what this book is, right? I just want people to think, think, and and to know that the people of the past were just as complicated and strange and wild as we are in the contemporary world.
0: Absolutely. And it's a wonderful book, and those questions are definitely Good questions that people will come away with after they've read it. Um, Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: My extreme pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit EvergreenPodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Jill Grudenwald and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit ProfessionalBookNerds.com.
1: Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty.